All right, welcome to the Lowly Shepherd Podcast. I'm Pastor Jay, and uh, this week, as I mentioned last time, uh, I really want to take a look at the figure of Melchizedek, and uh, that's something that's coming up in uh, in our study of Hebrews on Sunday mornings and that sermon series on Hebrews, and uh, was mentioned this last Sunday, uh, just kind of briefly, it just kind of touched upon it in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, uh, mentioning that Jesus is of the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then it just kind of leaves it there, and uh, but uh, it's, he's going to come back to it. He's going to have a little detour in chapter 6 dealing with some uh, another warning about falling away from the faith, but he's going to come back to it primarily in chapter 7 and really go through and talk about Melchizedek. And um, in light of that, I got, you know, it, Melchizedek's just one of those really sort of enigmatic figures of the Old Testament that just really is, people have a lot of questions about him, and so I thought it'd be good to do a podcast just on the figure and the person of Melchizedek. Who is this guy? What's his deal? And uh, why does he just kind of show up briefly? He kind of appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14, has a couple of verses, blesses Abraham, and then you know he's gone and you don't see him again anywhere else really in the Old Testament, uh, except for a reference in the book of Psalms. There's a Psalm, Psalm 110, which interestingly enough is one of the more uh, quoted uh, psalms in all the New Testament. Psalm 110 is a very big Messianic psalm. Uh, Jesus himself makes reference to that in in the Gospels. And so uh, he shows up there, the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood as it's called. And of course that's where the the author of the book of Hebrews is quoting from. And then he goes and, and expands upon that even more. And so, outside of uh, the book of Hebrews, Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and really Jesus as high priest anywhere, does not show up anywhere else in the New Testament, just in the book of Hebrews. And so, just those three places is the only place in the entire Bible that he shows up. So, that's kind of interesting. Let's get into it. So, as I mentioned... Uh, those three places, Genesis 14, um, a couple verses there, Psalm 110, and, uh, and then Hebrews, mentioned briefly in chapter 5 and 6, and then most uh, really expanded upon in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, are the only place that the name Melchizedek shows up. In fact, it's only the two times in, uh, in the Old Testament, and then eight times mentioned by name in the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews alone in the New Testament. Um, and so, why is there so much curiosity about this guy, but before we get into that, I wanted to show you the places in the Old Testament where Melchizedek shows up, and so I'm going to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 14, Genesis 14, and I'm going to be reading verses 17 uh, through verse 20 is where we get uh, Melchizedek, and uh, the background of this is, you know, there was a, a revolt with some of the kings there, with Shedel, uh, Damar. Uh, some of the client states of his rebelled against him. Among them, Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against him, and he, you know, came and took captives. And among those captives were Lot and his family that had settled near or in Sodom by that point. Um, and so Abraham signs up 318 of his fighting men, and they go out and they capture uh, and retake Lot and all of his people and bring them back along with the spoils of war. And as they're coming back uh, to, to Canaan and to the area where, where Abram was located, he's stopped by this guy, Melchizedek. And so let's pick up there in uh, verse 17 of chapter 14 of Genesis. It says, After his, that's being Abram's, return from the defeat of Shedel, or Kedel Damar, 
And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and that's uh, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, that being Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And so that's really the only place in the narrative where he shows up. And then the only other place in the Old Testament is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, uh, and this, of course, is the one that Jesus is quoting. He says, the Lord, and that's Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, or Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, that being Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Alright, so you've got Lord, and it's a little confusing in English, because uh, anytime you see the word Lord in all caps, that is the divine personal name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Jehovah sometimes gets pronounced, but it's probably more like Yahweh. Um, and that, that means I am that I am, or I exist. And... Uh, so Yahweh says to my Lord, now this is David writing the psalm, presumably, at least that's how it's quoted, and that's how Jesus quotes it. And uh, if David, because people in the ancient times took it, well, this is you know God talking to David, but if David's writing it, who's the Lord? He's saying, God said to my Lord, so this Lord is Lord to David. And so this is uh, one of the things that gets quoted in the New Testament as a messianic psalm talking about the coming Messiah. And so God is talking to this Lord, whoever this Lord is, that he is going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's, of course, where uh, the book of Hebrews is quoting particularly from this psalm. So that's the only place he appears, those two Old Testament passages and then the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So why all the confusion about him? What, what's the deal with him? Um, as I got into this, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I already knew about Melchizedek, but as I got into to researching it a little bit more for, the, for this podcast, there is so much stuff about this guy, it's ridiculous. Uh, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, out in left field kind of uh, applications of who he was and what he did and what his job was. There is a ton of literature in uh what we would call the intertestamental period, what scholars call the Second Temple Judaism period, um, you know, that, that talk about Melchizedek and, and, and really equate him. Uh, I mean, he's like this apocalyptic end times figure in some uh, uh, literature. Uh, he shows up as um, possibly as a version of Enoch. Uh, he shows up as, as a messianic type figure in a couple of places in the Qumran community. Uh, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, in fact, there, there's a, a book called Second Enoch, um, or Slavonic Enoch, which is, uh, actually tells this story at the, in, in part of it. It's just one little section of Second Enoch uh, about how Melchizedek was born of a virgin of Noah's brother's wife. And his, I think his name was Ner or Nir. 
And uh, apparently the, the mother died giving birth to him, and, and probably the reason she died is because when he was born, he was fully developed and fully clothed and able to speak and give praises and glory to God wearing the, the mark of priest upon his forehead. So that's really odd. Uh, some weird, weird stuff that comes out of that. Um, I even read one, one uh, article that was trying to convince me that uh, Melchizedek is an alien uh, that was just coming down to check on us earthlings to see how we were doing, and that, that's what his deal was. And so there's a lot of really strange sort of traditions connected to Melchizedek. Um, and interestingly enough, it's not just the traditional Christian or even Jewish perspectives. Um, some of the um, religious cults that kind of have broken off of Judaism and Christianity, such as Kabbalahism, really makes a lot out of uh, Melchizedek. Um, and then um, Jehovah's, not Jehovah's Witness, um, the, the Mormons, the Church of the Latter-day Saint, actually makes a lot out of the order of Melchizedek and, and their line of priestliness and whatnot. Uh, and they actually say that Melchizedek is none other than Shem, the son of Noah, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. And so it's, there's just a lot. There's a lot of really weird things about him. Um, like I said, he is rather enigmatic. He shows up out of nowhere, and he kind of disappears from the scene. He's just the, this kind of mysterious figure, and we don't really know much about him, and probably that just sparked the imaginations of, of ancient Jews that started writing about this guy. I don't know. Uh, but it did kind of bring up a lot of things. Well, there are a lot of curious things about him and about what he does uh, that probably kind of sparked some of these uh, imaginative uh, interpretations of it. And uh, the first one I kind of want to talk about is uh, his name. Uh, now, we know from Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, the author of Hebrews, translates his name Melchizedek as meaning king of righteousness, uh, and he's making that comparison. He's king of righteousness, and he's king of Salem, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, which Salem means peace, or shalom, salam, um, meaning peace. And so, and, and of course, in, in Hebrews, he's making that connection. Jesus is king of righteousness and prince, or king of peace. Um, and so that's, that's one translation, and that's one possible interpretation of what his name means. Um, and, and you, can, you can get there. The problem is that's not really the most obvious uh, translation of that name. And uh, it's, it gets really, really technical, and a lot of uh, Hebrew scholars that are much smarter than me could probably explain this a lot better. Uh, but it actually has to do with uh, what they call morphology, which is how words get put together uh, in any language, but in this case in the Hebrew language. And uh, there's two root words there in the name Melchizedek, Melech, uh, which is the Hebrew word for king, and Sedek, it's a T-S sound, and it usually gets spelled in English with a Z, Sedek, uh, which is the, the, the word for the noun just, or, or like an adjective, righteous, or righteousness. Um, and so you can see, well, king, righteous, okay, king of righteousness, that makes sense, uh, how the, the author of Hebrews uh, kind of uh, expounded upon that. Uh, the problem is with uh, morphology is the way how words get put together and what letters change uh, when you put things together. Um, a good example of this in English would be like the word holy. Uh, holy is H-O-L-Y, but if you add the ness on the ending to make it, you know, the sort of uh, the extended form, the word holiness, that Y turns to an I, for example. So that's, that's how the word morphs or transforms uh, when you put... It, you know, suffixes on it, or you put another word with it, 
uh, how those words kind of transform in that way. That's called morphology. And so according to Hebrew scholars, those guys that are really smart and know Hebrew a lot better than I do, uh, those guys will say, well, there's a problem with this way that that translation works because if you're putting this word together like this, uh, you're getting sort of a possessive uh, malachi, um, which has that sort of possessive on it at the end of it. So it sh probably should be better translated as my king is righteous or my king is righteousness uh, would be a more accurate translation, which is not, not that big of a deal. I mean, that's still pretty close either way. I mean, we're getting the general idea. Um, the point in this would be that, that uh, Melchizedek is not saying, I myself am the king of righteousness. He's saying, my king, whether an earthly king, he's you know, a priest, or uh, in the sense of God is my king. So my king God is righteous, which, which would make sense as well. Uh, where things get really funny is that word Zedek, uh, and uh, you have to remember this, this guy Melchizedek is not an Israelite. I mean, Abraham, there's not really even any Israelites at this point. Abraham is not even Abraham. He's just Abram at this point. Uh, you know, the child of, of promise has not really uh, come along at this point. You don't have, um, you know, the line of Jacob and the, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Israel. Uh, so there, there are no Israelites at this point. So this guy is not an Israelite. He's a Canaanite. He lives in Canaan, uh, possibly some related to the group of people called the Jebusites who were known to have inhabited the, the, the region and, of course, the city-state of Jerusalem, as we'll talk about in a minute. And so, interestingly enough, there is a Canaanite deity, or god, called Zedek, uh, one of their major chief deities. And so, a lot of scholars have taken that to say, well, this is a, a, a theophonic name, uh, meaning, like, um, you know, he's using a, a divine name as a part of his name. Like, uh, Michael means, you know, uh, uh, actually, I forget what Michael means, something like gift of God or something like that. The E-L ending is L, as in God, short for Elohim. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's like that word. So maybe Melchizedek means, well, my king is Zedek, this god, this Canaanite god. Well, that brings up all sorts of issues because then you start thinking, well, if he's saying his god is some Canaanite deity, then he can't be, you know, a priest of the Most High God, which is what it says. So that kind of, and of course, Abram wouldn't be getting blessed by some pagan, you know, priest and, and all that. So that kind of throws a, a hitch in that. Uh, and so there is a lot of weird things going on with his name. I'm still inclined to believe uh, I could go with my king as righteous as a, as a proper interpretation, but I think king of righteousness is probably fine. Uh, and, of course, I affirm the inspiration of Scripture anyway, so I'm going to go with what the book of Hebrews says and the author there. Uh, so I think that's fine. I just wanted you to be aware there are some weird things going on with his name, even, even just his name, without even talking about the person himself. Um, as to as to what that means, and then there's the issue of uh, this is the first place actually where the tithe is given or even mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the tithe or the tenth is where we get this idea of we we give a tithe a ten percent of our income to God or to the priest. <clears throat> Later on in the Levitical priesthood, the the people of Israel would tithe to them, and that was what they lived on. Um, and essentially, we still have, even in the Southern Baptist traditions, we still have this idea of tithes and offerings. A tithe is supposed to be, you know, kind of 10%, and offerings is sort of anything above and beyond that. And uh, even I, as, as a priest of God, as the pastor of the church, I receive my 
well-being, my, my um, living uh, from the tithes that are given. That's where my salary comes from. And so we still have this tithe idea carried on today. But it's interesting here, the tithe is paid not to an Israelite and not to the Levitical priesthood, which wouldn't exist for another four or five hundred years um, after this incident in Genesis. Uh, you have this tithe being paid to this Canaanite priest. So obviously there's something going on there. Uh, and of course, as I said, he got blessed by him. So you know, Abram wouldn't, wouldn't do that if, if this guy was really some kind of pagan priest. Which brings us to the next point. It does call him a priest of the Most High God. And that word there in Hebrew is El Elyon, which is only used, I believe. I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's only ever used in the Bible of the one true God, uh, Yahweh. And so, uh, you know, there was a Canaanite deity called El, um, which some you know, liberal scholars have said, oh, well, the, this, the, the Hebrews took, took this Canaanite deity and sort of transformed him into, into Yahweh. Um, but I don't think that, obviously, I don't think that's what's going on. I think uh, anywhere in the Bible where it's saying El Elyon, God or God Most High, um, is talking about the, the one and only God. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 I think there you're getting, obviously, the picture that this guy was a worshiper of Yahweh. And so, you know, we kind of get this idea that Abram was like the only one, you know, that, that worshipped this god, uh, and all the others worshipped all these other pagan gods. And so, uh, but that's obviously not the case. You know, God has always had a remnant. God has always had people outside of the sort of tr the, the lineage of, of the Hebrews that, that were worshipping of him and, and were... Um, um, aware of him and, and practice worship and practices of him. And so, uh, so here you have this Canaanite, this Jebusite, who is a priest of the Most High God, uh, regardless of what his name means there. He obviously is worshiping God, uh, Yahweh God. And so it says also he is the not just as, he's not just priest, he's king of Salem. Salem is how it's uh, translated in the, in the English. It's uh, actually a variant of Shalom. All right, so it's a king of Shalom, which means peace, and it's not just like peace from war. It means like eternal peace, rest, uh, peace with the gods or, or with God so that there's no uh, enmity and there's no strife. It's just complete rest, and of course in Hebrews we've been talking about that rest of God. And of course this is probably most likely the same as the city-state of Jerusalem, uh, or Jerusalem, which means possession of peace. Um, now, Jerusalem would not be an Israelite city until the time of King David. Uh, it was in Jebusite hands and Canaanite hands even after the conquest of, of the land. Uh, they just kind of left that city alone, uh, maybe because of the tradition of Melchizedek, I'm not sure. Um, but until the time of King David, and King David took it and made it his capital city, the capital of, of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and it remained the capital of the southern kingdom even after the split, uh, after the divide between the northern and the southern kingdoms. And, of course, it is Jerusalem that plays such a big part all throughout the, the rest of the Bible and, of course, in the New Testament. Um, and it is Jerusalem where the tabernacle resided on Mount Zion and then eventually the Temple of Solomon and then the second temple, uh, what would later be called Herod's Temple, um, and where now sits the Dome of the Rock uh, and the, and the, uh, the Muslim mosque uh, that sits there. And so Jerusalem is, a, is an important city in the Bible. And here we may have it early on in the book of Genesis 
Uh, and so uh, Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem. And so that's pretty interesting as well. Uh, Psalm 76.2, you can look this up yourself, makes this association between Jerusalem and Salem. And so there is a biblical evidence for Salem being the city of Jerusalem as well. All right. What's interesting about this is that he's mentioned as priest, but he's also mentioned as king. So here you have combined in one figure a king who is a priest. Now, that actually is not all that uncommon for the Canaanite peoples or the Semitic peoples all around them, but it would be highly irregular for the Israelites because that was not what God ordained. Uh, God kind of set apart the, Levi the Levites, the Levitical tribe, as the tribe of priests, and then the kings wouldn't come from the Levites, and the kings would not be priests. And so the, only the Levites could be priests, and really only the line of Aaron uh, could be priests uh, in, this, in this covenant that God makes with them. In fact, you have a couple of places where, uh, for Korah's rebellion, for example, who was a Levite but not of the line of Aaron, decided, hey, I'm a Levite too. Why can't I be high priest? And he rebels against them. And, of course, God you know, opens up the earth and swallows him and all those that rebelled with him. And of course, uh, later on, you get the first king of Israel, the United Kingdom of Israel, uh, Saul, King Saul, uh, in, gets impatient waiting for the priest Samuel to come. And so he offers up the sacrifice that Samuel was supposed to do and takes on the role of a priest that the king was not supposed to do, and he gets punished by God for it. Uh, later on, King Uzziah uh, also does a priestly role and ends up with leprosy. He's cursed with leprosy by God uh, because of his irreverence and in, in sort of taking on that priestly role. So that's something that would have been anathema to the Israelites, but here you have king and priest sort of combined together in this one figure. And of course, that's prefiguring Jesus, who would be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but also our great high priest, according to Hebrews. And so he takes on both these roles and uh, kind of connecting the dots once again in, in the uh, book of Hebrews between Jesus and this Melchizedek guy. Um, Part of the reason, especially according to Hebrews 7, which makes a big deal about this, part of the reason why there's this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek is because of uh, this lack of lineage. Now, in the book of Genesis especially, uh, chapters 5, chapters uh, 11, uh, for example, give these extended lists of genealogies. And by that I mean, you know, so-and-so lived to be so many years, and then he begot so-and-so. Who, and then he lived so many years after that, and he had many other sons and daughters, and then this guy grew up, and he gave, you know, begot this guy, and then he begot this guy, and begot this guy, these genealogies. Uh, and it's important to the Israelites because, of course, the book of Genesis is the book of origins. That's what Genesis means. It's the book of origins. And so it's showing you this detailed list of how all these people came to be, all the nations came to be, how sin came into the world. It's the origins of, of Israel as a nation. Uh, as it ends up with, with uh, Jacob and his children in Egypt, which is going to set up the stage for uh, the book of Exodus. And so you, know, you have this extended list, and every one of these people are mentioned as, this, is, this guy is Jim, son of whatever, Bob. And so you get that all throughout, uh, not just in the book of Genesis, but elsewhere. It's always the son of so-and-so, or you know, it give, gives this genealogy, this list, this origin of where this person comes from, or, this, or if it doesn't give... 
uh, a name of a father, it will sometimes give a name of a place. Like uh, Judas Iscariot, for example, means Judas the man from Kerioth uh, is a city. And so uh, you get, you know, you're always getting some sort of descriptive analysis in the, in the Israelite text about where these people are coming from, either genetically or, or people group-wise or city-wise. Well, you don't get that with Melchizedek. There's not Melchizedek, the son of so-and-so, uh, of Papa Zedek. You know, you, you're not getting you know, any of this kind of this information. And so, like I said, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 makes a huge deal about this because he says, you know, Melchizedek had no mother or father and has no lineage. Now, some people have taken that to mean that like, he was some kind of virgin birth kind of idea. Uh, in fact, like I said, that... that uh, a scroll of Second Enoch in the Second Temple literature actually says that that it was a virgin birth and and, and you know he was born fully clothed and fully developed um, and so there there's some sort of mystical sort of ties to this um, of course I don't see that comparison necessarily it just you know the Book of Genesis just doesn't give his lineage I don't think that there's anything supernatural about it uh, in that sense in the Book of Genesis. And I don't think that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. He's just saying that he's a sort of prefigures Jesus or as a type or foreshadowing of Jesus and that Jesus is not of this lineage of the Levitical priest either. And, and so that's, that's why. Um, and so that is, that is kind of interesting. Um, because of that, like I said, it has led to a lot of speculation because he has no lineage, he has no beginning or end, Hebrews says, uh, no mother or father. Uh, has led to a lot of speculation about exactly what you know what type of person he is. Is he a human being or is he something else? Is he something more divine? Uh, some have you know postulated or speculated maybe he's some sort of divine angelic being. Uh, some have suggested uh, you know maybe he's one of those sons of God, those higher ranking Elohim. In fact, uh, uh, one of the scrolls of um, Qumran community, I think it was eleven Q uh, maybe. Uh, connects him to the, this, uh, uh, in the Essene the Qumran community, there was a lot of uh, talk about this angelic divine being called Metatron, uh, not to be confused with Megatron, who was from the Transformers, but Metatron uh, is this angelic divine being, you know, one of these high-ranking, what we would call angels, uh, that shows up in Second Temple literature, uh, and there are some connections there uh, between Melchizedek and, and this Metatron figure. Uh, and so some have kind of made those connections. Some of the more interesting ones I saw, actually, I'd never heard this, but uh, some have made the suggestions that Melchizedek is actually Job. Uh, and so Melchizedek is like a title, uh, and so, but his real name is Job, and so this is Job. Um, just one major problem with that, there's absolutely zero evidence in the text or anywhere else that connects those two guys. It's just complete speculation. Uh, one sort of connected similarly to that is that Melchizedek is none other than Shem, uh, the uh, son of Noah. And uh, they will make this suggestion that's like, well, Shem could have still been alive in the days of Abraham. He would have been around, you know, four or five hundred years old. And so towards the end of his life, because I think he lived to be like six hundred and five years old. Um, but he would have been towards the end of his life, but he would have been around in the time when Abraham was about a hundred to a hundred and forty or somewhere thereabout. Um, well, if you're going by the Masoretic text, uh, you can make that comparison by following those numbers. 
but if you're going by the much older text of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the um, uh, Samaritan Pentateuch or the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all of which were written about a thousand years before the Masoretic text and much closer to the original Hebrew documents, uh, they all have much larger numbers uh, for those genealogies that were listed. And, and according to them, like the Septuagint, for example, uh, Shem would have been dead some five, six hundred years before Abram uh, came on the scene. And so that makes that you know, illogical and impossible for that to be the case. Not to mention, much like the case of Job, there is zero literary connection. I mean, nobody makes that connection anywhere in Scripture uh, between Melchizedek and Shem. It just, it's just not there. It just, uh, it's just a lot of people that they kind of are trying to make that connection that they just, you know, they're they're making stuff up. It's just not there. Um, now, one one uh, possible uh, interpretation of who Melchizedek is. It does have some mm, grip, I would say, some, uh, some traction, is that what you have in Melchizedek is not a human being, but you have a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a God appearance. You know, when God appears in human form, he appears to Abram you know, several times. Um, most notably when he and two other angels show up and, and have a meal with him, and he goes and talks about, you know, about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he appears as a human being. He sits down, he eats, you know, eats dinner with them and whatnot. And that's called a theophany uh, or a God appearance. Um, and there are some places where you see uh, the, with that definite article, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, who speaks as God, most notably with the uh, burning bush incident in Exodus. Uh, you have the angel of the Lord speaks from the fire of the burning bush. And then in the very next statement, Thus says the Lord God, this, you, know, you need to do this. And so he's speaking as God, and only the definite article, the angel of the Lord, speaks as God. And of course, many, and I agree with this, see that as a pre-incarnate or pre-virgin you know, birth existence of the second person of the Trinity, Christ. Uh, this is called a Christophany, Christophany, uh, where uh, you know, Jesus is appearing in, in the human sort of fleshly way before he has actually become flesh become human uh, through the virgin birth. So there is some possibility. Some are reading Hebrews 7 that way and making that connection. I once again don't think that that's what the author of Hebrews is actually implying in that passage. Um, and so I, I personally don't think that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. I really just think Melchizedek was just a guy that was a, a worshiper of, of Yahweh God. Um, and I think he gets used as a foreshadowing or a shadow or an echo uh, or a type. Uh, typology is really a type of prophecy in the Bible where you, you have someone that really is sort of foreshadowing usually the Messiah or the Christ that is to come. Uh, Moses is a type of Christ that is to come. Of course, he gives that famous prophecy about there's going to be a prophet like Moses that's going to come up later that's going to be greater than Moses. And, of course, that is Jesus. And so I do think Melchizedek is a type, but I don't think personally that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. Although a lot of Christians follow that, a lot of evangelical Christians believe that, and I'm not going to argue with you if you do hold that position. I mean, it's fine with me. I think there's some um, textual evidence there that you can make that case pretty, pretty soundly 
uh, and have a leg to stand on. But uh, I think there's also just as much evidence either way. But uh, personally, I don't I don't follow that tradition. But uh, I, I think you can make that case. Um, another incident here that you have is like he blesses Abraham. Uh, which uh, the author of Hebrews makes a big deal about, because if he blesses Abraham, well, the greater blesses the lesser, and you don't pay tithes to your lesser, you pay tithes to the greater. And so the idea here is that Melchizedek is in a higher position, or a position of authority or rank, uh, in that sense, above and beyond Abram. And Abram recognized that, and so he allowed himself to be blessed by him and to pay tribute to him or pay tithe to him. Uh, from the spoils of the war that he just fought. And so, once again, uh, Hebrews makes that same idea that the order of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. Um, in fact, he makes the connection that he's like, hey, Abram paid tithe, paid tribute to Melchizedek before Levi was even, you know, as the expression was, a twinkle in his daddy's eye. I mean, Le even, the child of promise Isaac is not on the scene yet, let alone his, you know, son Jacob who would go on to give birth to, you know, or give, begot Levi. So, I mean, you're talking several generations before Levi even shows up on the scene. But Hebrews makes the case that, well, hey, Abram, his ancestor, his forefather, paid tribute, sort of paying tribute on his behalf. And so he makes the case that the Levites are a lesser order because they pay tribute uh, to the order, priestly order of Melchizedek. So uh, we'll see that more when you get to Hebrews chapter 7 um, and that case that he is making. And then, of course, uh, we talked about Psalm 110, making those ties of uh, this priesthood, this eternal priesthood, uh, to this, this sort of secondary figure. You've got Yahweh God talking to someone that David calls Lord, which you know should only be reserved for God, but it's not the divine name of God. It's just it's, it's the simple title Lord, or Adonai. And... Uh, you, you, you know, it's really kind of a confusing passage, and, and really I don't have time to get into it, but uh, as I have learned, there is a lot of textual issues going on in Psalm 110, which makes it really, really difficult to translate properly on the surface anyway. Um, and so actually, um, one guy said it's probably one of the biggest uh, passages in all of the Old Testament for trying to understand and, and interpret properly. So uh, there's a lot of things going on in Psalm 110, but... Of course, Psalm 10 is the one that makes that connection between the Messiah figure, uh, this Lord, this uh, uh, power that's going to uh, you know, take on this priestly role. And of course, later on in the New Testament, it gets quoted, and we know that this is Jesus, um, that this, this uh, prophecy this psalm is actually talking about. And um, there, uh, Hebrews is picking up that same passage as well. So there's... Like I said, we're just scratching the surface. There's really a lot more we could talk about, uh, but I think that's probably where I'm going to end it today. We'll, uh, if you're with me on Sunday mornings, we'll, we'll get to it more when we get to Hebrews chapter 7 in a couple of weeks. But uh, there's just a, a whole lot of weird, weird stuff going on with this guy Melchizedek. And uh, if you're interested in, in more study about this, I'll probably throw a couple of links down in there that you can read some of the background material uh, there's a great, uh, if you have a lot of free time, there's a great three and a half hour long uh, YouTube link from the Naked Bible Podcast. And uh, one of my personal favorite scholars, Dr. Michael Heiser, who goes into a lot of these same issues that I'm talking about um, and, and a lot more detail uh, than I'm talking about it because uh, that guy's a brilliant guy. 
Um, and so maybe I'll throw that link in there as well. If you've got three and a half hours to kill, you can go ahead and listen to some of that stuff as well if you're interested in more on this subject. But uh, I think we'll call it a day for this time, and uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good time.